Bethlehem. I grew up celebrating the Advent season, Advent simply meaning the coming of the Lord. And uh, I thought this Christmas, we've done numerous things through the Christmas season in years past, but I wanted to do something serious as well as fun. And so uh, I had our talented people here create a set for me and want to call the new sermon series that we'll be doing for the next four weeks, including this one, Don't Let Your Grinch Steal Christmas. Don't Let Your Grinch Steal Christmas. Before I talk just a little bit about that, though, can we not just uh, recognize our prop crew that did all the wonderful decorating and all the wonderful things? And... uh, we may mention some of them later as we go through this. Uh, if I, I mean, there were so many people. The whole youth department, I know, participated. I, I know there were numerous adult helpers. And I, my fear is if I start throwing out names, uh, I'll forget somebody who had an important part. Because the truth of the matter is not one bow would be up, not one stocking would be, would be up, or one snowflake in the air if it weren't for somebody. And so uh, I, I don't want to overlook anybody. Uh, but at the same time, recognize that uh, everybody just did a, tr- a tremendous, tremendous job, and you're, you're to be commended on all of that. Some of you may remember years ago, and I'm talking, you'd have to be at least my age, because it was in 1966. I was seven years old. You can do the math. 1966, I was seven years old, and I actually saw the original showing There was only, back in those days, some of you will remember this, some of the kids don't know this. Do you know there was a day when there were, if you were in the big city, three channels and one UHF? Maybe you had had a second UHF, but boy, that thing had a lot of snow on it. You had to move the, you know, the antennas every which way. I'll never forget, my dad had an antenna in the backyard that he was constantly yelling at us because we could climb up it, you know, and it was real high and you pointed it towards Chicago and you could get all these these television stations. So I know to the kids' minds, that just doesn't even register when you've got 500, you know, satellite channels or more that you can put on your television set. But in those days, they would put these animated cartoons, and it seemed like there was one year, and I want to say it was that year, 1966, when they began to put all of these Christmas animated stories on the television set. Do you remember? Do you remember Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and, and and the guy who wanted the little kid on there that wanted to be the dentist and he took out the tooth of the big you, misfit toys? You remember all of that? You remember uh, uh, Frosty the Snowman and 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 uh, and that was with Jimmy Durante and uh, Rudolph had Burl Ives singing. See, some of you are so young you don't even know who I'm talking about. You're going, what in the world? And then, of course, there was our friend, the Grinch. And, and actually, the Grinch story was from a Dr. Zeus book that was entitled, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And again, I was seven the first time it was on TV. I mean, it was a big deal. Because most of us had those Dr. Zeus books. You know, like Horton Hears the Who. You remember Horton? And some of you had those very books in your library. And so, a lot of people... Uh, that are my age will remember the cartoon version. Some of you that are a little bit younger, you probably remember the Jim Carrey version, which wasn't nearly as good as the cartoon version. I'll just let you know. 
But I started thinking about the Grinch. And to remind us all, and to bring back those memories of yesteryear, I, I want to play a song that I'm sure many of you will remember. And I want to introduce to you, and some of you kids, this will be a new introduction, but I want to introduce to you, by way of appearance, the Grinch himself. So guys, play the song, and, and we'll just welcome the Grinch this morning. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. You have termites in your smile. You have all the tender sweetness of a seasick crocodile, Mr. Grinch. Given the choice between the two of you, I'd take the seasick crocodile. You're a foul one, Mr. Grinch. You're a nasty, wasty skunk. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk, Mr. Grinch. The three words that best describe you are as follows, and I quote, Stink, stank, stunk. You're a rotter, Mr. Grinch. You're the king of sinful thoughts. Your heart's a dead tomato splotched with moldy purple spots, Mr. Grinch. Your soul is an appalling dump heap, overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up in tangled up knots. You nauseate me. Mr. Grinch, with a nauseous super nos. You're a crooked jerky jockey and you drive a crooked horse, Mr. Grinch. You're a three-decker sauerkraut and toadstool sandwich with arsenic sauce. Mr. Grinch again through these weeks. <clears throat> but I wanted to play for you the Grinch song. How many of you knew some of the words, by the way? I, isn't that amazing what your mind remembers? But if you listen to the words, it perhaps better than anything defines the illustration that I want to use the Grinch for this Christmas. 
You see, there's something we immediately get when we have the word Grinch put out there to us. It's kind of like the name Ebenezer Scrooge. If I were to use the term Scrooge, if you called somebody a Scrooge, you would instantly have an idea of the demeanor or the character of that particular person if you called them a Scrooge. Is that not true? In fact, if we were to call someone a Scrooge, just out of curiosity, you can talk back to me, what would you think if you called someone a Scrooge? They were what? Cheap, tight, miserly, all of these sorts. Scrooge Scrooge has become, what is that called, an antonym, synonym, an adjective, something. It's become the word meaning cheap. So it is with the Grinch. Grinch is that animated character, caricature of selfishness or of meanness. Really, it's used as anti-Christmas. So the Christmas season this year I want to use with the Grinch as a running illustration of what each of us needs to combat and address in our own life. You see, each one of us, whether we want to believe this or not, has what I call this inner Grinch. Psychologists haven't found this yet. But you all have an inner Grinch. I do too. And it's, it's an inner Grinch that desperately wants to get out. In fact, it gets out all too often. And today I'm just going to give you a short introduction to all of this. And the next Sundays through this Christmas season, I'm going to teach from the Christmas passages to help you see some people who didn't do so well with that inner Grinch, and others who had the capacity to overcome it. And so this morning, in order to get all of this under our belt, I've entitled our message today, Getting to Know Your Inner Grinch. Getting to Know Your Inner Grinch. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Romans. I'm going to read, I've got to read several passages here. I know it doesn't sound like a Christmas passage at first, but bear with me. You'll begin to put the pieces together here in just a moment. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, it says this. It says, what then? Are we better than they? In other words, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles and the distinguishing that was made in those times concerning the Jews' favor with God and the Gentiles being out of favor with God. And he looks at his Jewish folks, his friends and family, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, and he begins to quote out of Psalm 53. He says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouths is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that ends the passage here in uh, Romans chapter 3. But if we were to have read that out of Psalm 53, it would have ended with another verse. And this is the verse, Psalm 53, verse 6. He quotes all of it, but then this is the verse in the Psalms that was there. It says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. 
Now the psalmist cries out, oh, after saying all of these things, oh, that there might be salvation that would come forth that would save Israel. Paul doesn't say that. And the reason he doesn't say that is because, as he will begin to show us, salvation has come out of Israel. It's no longer a prophetic hope. But he's talking about a present reality. Now, what he begins to say and where we all need to start is here. All of us, and I do mean all of us, were born with a problem. I have sort of cutely called it the inner Grinch. But the Lord calls it something much, much different. In fact, there are several words all through the Scripture that He will use, the Lord will use as He inspired His Word in order to communicate something that all of us need to get a hold of before we go any further. He calls this inner problem at times the sinful nature. There are other times He calls it the carnal nature. Paul would at times call it the old man. John mentioned that we were children of wrath. We have a carnal mind. Perhaps the one best known is the phrase, the flesh. The flesh. And the reason Jesus Christ came to this earth was to not only forgive us for our sinful actions, to not only deliver us from the power of the devil, to not only heal our bodies and to break all curses. Now, just that list of things, can you not, we need to just say amen. Think about that for just a minute. He forgives our sinful actions. He delivers us from the power of the devil. He heals our bodies. He breaks all curses. If we just stop there, this would be a pretty good deal. But the part that we sometimes overlook, and it's the part we're going to zero in on for a few weeks, is this. He helps us deal with this nature we were all born with. Now you say, well, Pastor, why is that even important? Well, it's important because as Christians, I think we've been fooled with two errors that have kept us from true victory. I believe when Jesus died, He died in order that we might have true victory. And there are two errors that creep into our thinking that have to be addressed. And, and, and sometimes we're taught this, unfortunately, even at church. And we've got to address these errors in order that we can break free of the error in order to embrace the truth. The first error is this. It's that the devil causes most of our problems. That's an error. You say, well, wow. I thought it was the devil who caused most of our problems. Well, I, I want you to know that simply isn't true. The enemy has certainly caused issues in our lives, but for most of us, our greatest problem is not the devil whom we think we can see all around us. Our greatest problem is the person you see in the mirror every morning. That's your greatest problem. You see, when it comes to deliverance and being set free from the power of the enemy, the power of God through the cross is more than enough to deal with the devil. Do you understand right now that here's God, here's the devil, and it's not as if they're like equal and they're duking it out until you decide which side you're going to fall on. That's not how it works. God is God and there is none like Him. Satan is a fallen angel. Now, I will give him his due. He is powerful as a supernatural being, but he is not all-powerful. He knows a lot as a supernatural being, but he is not all-knowing. He has the capacity to be a lot of different places very swiftly, but he cannot be every place at once. So the enemy, even though he has power to him, is not all-powerful like our God. 
God and the devil is not an equal equation. One being, you know, this is the good side of the force and this is the dark side of the force. No, 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 no. There is none like our God. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says in Colossians 3 that he made public spectacle of all powers and principalities, having triumphed over them. There is no question as to who wins the battle between God and the enemy. But here's the problem. Our carnal nature is a little bit different when it comes to how God must deal with that. There has to be a permission on our part to allow Him to begin to deal with that nature you and I were born with. You know, a lot of folks think, well, you know, I've heard this said before. Well, the devil's been after me this week. Well, probably the devil hadn't been after you this week. It may be your carnal nature has flared up this week. And you've got to begin to distinguish these things in your life. And when you begin to understand that the devil isn't behind every rock. Now, is he behind some rocks? Yes. He's not behind every bush. Is he behind some bush? Yes. But a lot of what you and I face isn't so much demonic in nature as much as we shoot ourselves in our own feet because of our carnal nature. Years ago, there was a cartoon that ran in newspapers all over America. And it was a little character uh, by the name of Pogo. And I'll never forget, it was years ago, in a Pogo cartoon. This little character is just one of those daily quips with about three or four frames. And he gets up in the morning, he, he goes to the bathroom, he looks in the mirror, he walks out, he faces his friend, and he says these words, I have met the enemy, and he is me. That is so true. The devil is not the cause of most of our problems. Number two, the second error we've got to deal with. Some will say, well, that's just the way we are, and we just have to learn to live with it. Whenever I have talked about victory over sin through the years, I always hear people say something to this effect. Well, pastor, you know what the Bible says, Romans 3.23, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, that's true. It's in the Bible. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But this is what I usually respond with. It's this. All have sinned, not all do sin. While it is true we are all born with sin nature, that doesn't leave you sort of in this this helpless victim state that somehow or another you can't triumph or you can't overcome or you can't prevail with the things that are before you. I'm not going to suggest that any human being can perform errorlessly. I don't believe you can perform errorlessly. I don't believe that you're going to wake up and there's a day that you're going to do everything absolutely right. I believe that there are probably sins of omission that take place on a regular basis. But I do believe there is something more we can do to address our nature that causes us to find ourselves in predicaments that the devil didn't get us there. It was our nature that got us into that problem. If Jesus came to address the sin problem, then I have to believe that his sacrifice and his life addresses the nature problem. If he takes upon my sin, the scripture doesn't say that he that he illustrated sin. The Bible says that he became what sin. He became sin in order that I might become the righteousness of God. This is, this is so overlooked by most people. I know it's a little doctrine, just bear with me. Most people teach that when we receive Jesus Christ, righteousness 
is imputed to us. And that is true. What that means is when righteousness is imputed to us, it means that God looks at us differently. It's as if He does see not just our, our, our faults and our frailties and even our sins and our mess-ups and our screw-ups, but He sees us through the blood. That's what imputing means. But the problem is, most of us stop there. We don't understand that that whole passage in 2 Corinthians is not just God looks at us different, but as He became sin. He literally became sin. That's why He became uh, uh, disfigured. That's why He became just this emaciated and, and, and lacerated. It's because He became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. There is an imparting of His nature. 2 Peter 1 and 4 says this, that you and I have become partakers of the divine nature. That's why I'm not the same person that I was. That's why I'm not, you know, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. I am that, but I'm different. I am of the born again. I am of a new creature class. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. There is something that has changed in me. Something. Now, you're never going to get to victory until you get a handle on this. See, we've been taught God looks at me different, and it's sort of like He's just band-aiding us. I'll just band-aid you again. I'll band-aid you again. I'll band-aid you again. I'll dust you off. I'll band-aid you again. Now, I'm grateful that God is patient, long-suffering. He is kind. He is gentle. He will do that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. All I'm simply saying is there is a place that you and I can prevail and be victorious and overcome. And be more than a conqueror over the things that would normally have beset us and tripped us up. Now, as silly as it sounds, the Grinch is not the devil, nor is the Grinch controlled by the devil. The Grinch is who I'm going to use to try to describe that carnal, sinful inner nature. And uh, if the guys are ready back there, I want to play a clip here in about 15 seconds that, that comes from the original animated cartoon. And, and I want to show you what they use in the cartoon, and then I want to spring off that to talk about what's going on inside of you. Guys, you can douse the lights and throw that on the screen. Turn up your uncle and your aunt with your Zabu Fox Blast! 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 Zabu Fox
every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Ah, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve, hating the Who's. Staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm, lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now, hanging a holly wreath, And they're hanging their stockings. He snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. All right. Well, according to the Dr. Seuss story, the Grinch's heart, he said, was what? Two sizes, too small. Well, according to the Bible, your nature can get in the way of you walking out of what the Bible uses as your heart or your spirit or your inner man. And unless that's dealt with, you'll never begin to live the life that God has called you and I to live. And so as we begin this series, I want to help you understand where we'll be headed by answering some questions about your carnal nature. You need, to, you need to get to know your inner Grinch. You need to get to know how it is we're all born. So once you get a handle on what's going on inside of you, you can begin to apply the promise or you can begin to apply the answer, the anecdote. And so you can begin to see victory happen much more often in your life. Questions that I want to answer about the inner Grinch. There are four questions about the carnal nature that I just want to get out there as we introduce this whole area. The first one is... Let's talk about what is the carnal nature and what is it not. Perhaps it's best to tell you what it's not. Um, because I've already sort of touched on it, I want to remind you that your carnal nature, is, it does not mean you have a demon. I know some people think they must have a demon in them because something's flaring up inside of them and, and they don't realize, and, and actually it's kind of a pitiful thing because they run from here to there and everywhere, and they keep saying to themselves, I must have a demon, I must have an oppression, I must have an open door, I must have something going on inside of me because it's tripping me up, it's hindering me. But listen to me, a demon you can cast out, you cannot cast out your carnal nature. Now you can deal with your carnal nature, but you can't cast it out. And so if you've been running around thinking you got a devil in you and you need it cast out, it could be that we got you free from the devil, now it's time to get you through your carnal nature. The second thing about your carnal nature is it's, it's not a psychological issue. It's not, it's not a psychological thing. You know, people spend untold thousands of dollars to go seek counseling. Now, counseling is good. I counsel. I think professional counseling and therapy certainly has its place. But here's what people's problem is. 
They don't know how to deal with a carnal nature, so they go get counseling and then they get medicine. And they medicate their carnal nature. Are you with me? Now, I know some people medicate a demon as well. But you see, that's the part that, that we've got to get a hold of. We've got to understand when we're dealing with the devil and when you're dealing with the carnal nature. And you can't medicate it out. You can't, do you understand? You can't counsel out your carnal nature. So there's something that's got to happen beyond just medication and counseling. Thirdly, it's not a personality trait. There's some people, when they're functioning out of the flesh, think it's just their genetics. It's your DNA. Or they'll say to me, well, you know, I'm sanguine, I'm choleric, I'm phlegmatic, I've got a dominant melancholy personality, and this is just one of the negative aspects of my personality, and so it's just sort of a personality trait. i got good news for you. You can find victory over that. Your personality is not an excuse for you to function unrighteously or ungodly. Now, I, I really think this is a great lesson because I get to talk about all those weighty doctrinal things that never get talked about. Your carnal nature. What is your carnal nature? I'm going to show you that I've been to school because I'm going to say some Latin to you right now. People always wonder what that thing is inside of us. And, and this is what Luther said. Luther said that the carnal nature was in the Latin, incurvitum ense. Isn't that? Doesn't that impress you? Incurvitum ense. It literally means man turned into himself. Man turned into himself. So the most simple definition of your carnal nature is simply this. Selfish. That's the most simple definition I can give you of the carnal nature. It is that part of you that is self-centered. It is that part of you that is self-consumed. It is that part of you that is selfish. And when you hear the old doctrinal catechisms that will talk about, you know, original sin or the sin nature... You'll hear the old doctrinal catechisms talk about, I remember, you know, being in theology class and, and they'll talk about the carnal nature and they'd ask you for a definition and you would say, it is man's bent toward evil. Man's bent toward sin. Well, that sounds really doctrinal and theological, but I just want to get real practical. What it means is, you selfish. That's what it means. You're selfish. You're self-consumed. That is really, when you begin to think about it, that is the irreducible residue of what sin is. If you, could, if you could grind out all the other things that we think sin is, if you just get it down to its purest form, what is sin at its purest form? I'll tell you what sin at its purest, purest form is this. It's I want what I want when I want it. That is sin at its most pure form. So when you're acting selfish or when you're acting self-centered, that's not a devil. I know, I, I, you know, it happens all the time. You know, husbands or wives will come see me and they'll talk about their spouse and they'll say, he's got a devil or she's got a demon. And we've got to cast it out. I've been binding it. I've been loosing it. I've been, I, I'm telling you, it's not a devil. It's their nature. It's their nature. So when you're acting that way, it's not a, it's not a demon. Let me tell you, when you're acting that way, it's not your bipolar issues. It's not your ADHD. It's not your paranoia. It's not your stress. It's not your gender. It's not your age. It's your nature. Now, I'm going to show you why that is when we get to question two right here, which is, well, what does that look like practically? 
Because, you know, when we say sin nature, we always think to ourselves, sin. You know, whenever you say sin, there's something your mind goes to. That's sin. Oh, yeah, that's sin. And so there's something that immediately begins to fly in your mind as to what sin is. And, and the reason I know this is because there are things we do that are sinful that we don't consider sinful. Are you with me? We do it all the time and we just, we, we'll blow it off. Or we'll just say, well, it's the way I am or whatever we'll say in order to blow it off. But there's that sin. Oh yeah, that is sin. So, so how do we begin to understand practically how the nature works? Where, well, it's, it's like anything, there are egregious ways that the sin nature comes out. And then there are subtle ways that the sin nature comes out. For instance, if you were to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul gives you quite a list of the flesh there. I'm not going to take time to read the whole list to you. It's depressing. But when you read the works of the flesh, he's not talking about the works of the devil. Although we attribute many of these things to the works of the devil. He talks about murder, wrath, jealousy, drunkenness. I mean, there are lots of folks we've been casting out. Come out of him, you drunk spirit. Ha! It's not a drunk spirit. It's a work of the flesh. Even adultery, fornication, all of these things, he says, are rooted in the flesh. Why is that? Do you understand that any time you sin, no matter what the manifestation of the sin may be, the irreducible residue or the reason why you entered into that sin was because you were being selfish? Exactly. Exactly. So when you're going out getting drunk, you can say, well, I got drunk because I had a bad day at work. No, you're being selfish at that particular moment. Now, that's easy, isn't it? That's, that's an easy list. It's the subtle lists that kind of get catch us. And, and in order that you might understand how your nature works, I'm just going to go through a list of things that demonstrates how we're all born with this nature. Let me give you an example. The minute a baby is born... It comes out of the womb. It's screaming its brains out. The first thing that baby does as it enters into the world, you know, it's a spiritual moment because the interpretation of those screams are this. Feed me now. Get me out of this light now. Hold me now. And when you're, you're rushing to get it done, but you're not moving fast enough. I'm wet. Change me now. No, I'm not waiting 60 seconds. You're going to feed me now. That's what those screens mean. You know that, don't you? I mean, you're scrambling for the passy. Going through the purse. And the baby's screaming, it's crazy. it don't care that you're at a grocery store or you're at church. It doesn't care. It's about me. You understand? That's what that baby is saying. Now, I understand we all look at the baby and go, isn't it cute? Oh, it looks just like it's dad. We just, we just go through and we're just loving it. It's cute and it's adorable and all that. But do you understand? Inside that baby, there's a nature. It's a nature. It's the toddler who's in the nursery. And he gets the toy that the church owns. And one of the nursery workers goes to little Joey, whatever the name is, we're going we're gonna to learn share today. Mmm. 
my toy. My, this is mine. That's that nature. It's the nature when, when you're a little bit older. Maybe you're in the preteen stage and, and, and mom makes the sandwich. Maybe you've seen the commercial when the mom makes the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and the kids are fighting over who gets what half. And, 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 and you cut the thing and somebody's looking at that half that's just a hair's breadth bigger. That's the one I want. I want that half. It's the teenager. I'll get everybody before this is over. Oh, they'll cut in line at the fair. Oh, yeah, your friends waited for an hour to get on that ride, and, and you're just walking along and see them, and you just start talking to them out of line, and you just kind of... How did I get here? Have you ever watched, have you ever watched that, 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 usually it's on a news clip of the women who are waiting for that one shop, maybe it's in New York or Chicago, that has wedding dresses that they like give away, it's like 70, and it's like they open the doors for this incredible sale and all these women are running in there and they'll show women with one end of a wedding dress and they're, I don't care who you are. You can be homeless for all I care. That's my dress. It's my dress. People on Black Friday lining up to get into Walmart so they can get their 30% off gizmo. You know, we've turned the gospel even into self. We, 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 we just, we've just turned everything into selfishness. I've heard people in the church, people who have said they were Christians. I, 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 can't, I can't challenge anybody because I'm not God. But I've heard this. I have heard this with my own ear. I'm going to get $10 million in the bank. And when I get $10 million in the bank, then I can serve God full time and He won't have to worry about taking care of me. You are so full of poo-poo. You show me that verse in the Bible. I'll show you a verse that when Jesus looked at a rich guy and he said, let it all go. But, but let's not bring the Bible into this. It's the person who parks in the handicap stall on a rainy day who isn't handicapped. I mean, that's what it looks like practically. You know, sin isn't always you've got to wreck your world. The sin nature is just being Selfish. Self-centered, self-consumed. It's about me. Hey, we come to church and we'll even evaluate our church experience on what it is to me. You know, I've got to get something for me. For me. And now, now, I understand you should be fed. You should be tended to. There's a ministry that takes place. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that every action is not legitimate to find a place where you can relate. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that, that some people are waiting for the moment that they quit consuming. And the minute they, they aren't fed like they want to be fed and that consumerism gets challenged, well, they're going to find somewhere where they minister to me. We've got to be careful. That's our nature. It's our nature. Now, number three is, well, how did I get this? Doesn't seem quite right. I don't remember signing up for that. I don't remember anywhere saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in the carnal nature line right here. Give me the, I don't remember that. We all got this. Every single one of us got this from the original sin, the original selfish act of Adam and Eve. 
God said you could have, think about this, I, I thought about that, you could eat of any tree you want to eat from. Look at all these trees. But there's one tree out of all these trees. How many trees do you think were in that garden? Had to have been a good many, I would think. All these trees you can eat from, but there's one tree I'm going to ask that you don't eat from. It's kind of like when you look at your child and you say, you can wreck everything in the room, please don't touch this. You have just sealed your fate that they're going to that one thing. That's how it works. And so they probably already had a little bit of a propensity and curiosity, but then all of a sudden the enemy, as the serpent comes along, and he begins to tempt them. Now understand what I'm about to say here. I believe that the enemy will use your nature against you. But that doesn't mean the devil made you do it. Yeah, that's Flip Wilson, and the young people don't know who Flip Wilson is either. When he used to go, woo, you know. <laughs> Hear me. You, see, you get this for free. You're getting, you're getting good doctrine in Flip Wilson all at once. And the Grinch all at once. Where else could you go for things like this? So, so the enemy will use your nature against you. That's what he, when he tempts you, the reason temptation is temptation this is going to be real insightful. The reason temptation is a temptation for you, it's because it's an aspect in your nature that has not been addressed yet. Now, there's a way to address it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be temptation. There's a place that I believe we can break through in areas of temptation. I don't believe that we'll forever be immune to temptation. But I do believe that there is a place that you can begin to see breakthrough because he's soliciting or he's drawing upon that nature that he knows is inside of you. So here's Adam and Eve. They've got all the trees they can eat from, but there's this one in the middle that they aren't supposed to eat from. And the enemy shows up and he tempts them, but it wasn't his fault. Yes, he tempts, but it was them wanting what they wanted when they wanted it. All through the years, I've listened to people, Christian people, who will say these words. And it's because we're just not taught as well as we need to be taught. They'll say these things. Well, you know, I believe people are basically good. Golly. Have, have you just been in a cave? I mean, how do you define good? I, I mean, I think people can be decent to a degree. I, I'll put it to you this way. If it weren't for certain laws that suppress the nature, I, I, I just kind of wonder what we, we would be a lawless people. But, but you tell me what you think good is. You think good is the man who in the big city, and they showed this clip on the news as well as YouTube, who gets hit by a car and nobody stops to help him? How many times have we heard about the person in, in New York or the big city that, that gets assaulted and nobody stops to help them? Crimes that nobody calls in to report. I mean, I mean is this what we define as, as good? What about the millions of people who get laid off from their jobs when CEOs get their golden parachutes. Now, let me tell you, I'm as conservative as you get. But I'm here to tell you, something's not right. And we need, as the church, to begin to declare both the issues that cut to the Republican way as well as cutting to a Democratic way. I will offend all of them. I am here to tell you we are to be a prophetic voice and to say something's not right here. I don't care what your political leaning is. I'm talking about your nature. 
politicians, I'm just telling you, who seem to always own the perfect piece of property when the highway or the interstate comes through. That always amazed me, how they always seem to have purchased in the right location. I mean, I could go down the list. Man is not good by nature. There's, there's not a lot good inside of us being left to ourselves. We won't talk about your taxes and we won't, we won't talk about other areas of life that, that slide through. There is a Grinch, hear me now, there is a Grinch in every human being. That's what the Bible says when it says there is not one good. No, not one. Now, that's not to say you can't be made righteous, but he says in your natural state there's not one good. So, you got this because of great, 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 granddad Adam. Now, the question I've been asked as well is where is it located? Well, I mean, I've had a couple surgeries, and so far as I know, my doctor never said my carnal nature was not where it was supposed to be, or they didn't say there was something extra inside of there. Where is this located? Well, the easy, simple answer is in your soul. The carnal nature exists in the soulish realm. The carnal nature is the nature or the disease or the atmosphere inside of you that affects your mind, it affects your emotions, to such an extent that it begins to cause your choosing mechanism or your will mechanism to begin to make choices that are self-consumed or selfish in their action. It causes you to function that way because something in your mind is saying do this or something in your emotions is telling you to do this and it, and it pulls you, that's your bent, it pulls you to go in that direction. And this is the key. If you can minimize the effect of your nature, your carnal nature in your soul, if you can minimize this effect, you can reduce the number of times you shoot yourself in the foot. Are you hearing me? You, 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 can, you can break out of victim mentality and you can begin to say, hey, if I can learn what it means to spring out of this to some extent. Now, here's what I believe. I don't believe you will, because I grew up in the holiness movement and I won't go through all the stuff we were taught there because some of that was just plain wrong. And there are some that teach that it can literally be eradicated, and I'm just, I'm not there. I do believe there's something that can happen inside of you that can break the power of it. That can cause you to live far more effectively and victoriously. I do believe that. So how do you do that? How to overcome the Grinch in us all? Well, in the coming weeks, I'm going to talk about people out of the Christmas passage. I, I, I haven't chosen them all yet, but you know, there were some incredibly selfish people, and there were some incredibly selfless people. I mean, right now in your mind, can you imagine Mary and Joseph and the selflessness? But at the same time, can you think of like Herod and an innkeeper and the concept of selfishness? Well, we're going to talk more about them, but the bottom line I'm going to give you is this. The Bible uses a word that we don't get, but we're going to get before it's all over. It uses various synonyms of this word. The fancy word is the word consecrate. Probably an easier word is the word broken, or maybe what would be better used is yielded. These are the concepts that you must grab hold of in order to deal with the carnal nature. In order for God to use you greatly and not end up like the Grinch, selfish has to be broken. And I have found personally that selfish is rarely broken in our life theoretically. 
usually things are broken in our life through a circumstance that pushes a button in our life. Isn't that true? I mean, I've watched people come to altars and pray, and I, I, you're genuine, don't misunderstand. I believe people are genuine, they're crying out to God, they want more of the Lord. But in some ways, the altar is theoretical. It's good, it's needed, it can be an important aspect, we will continue to have invitations. But I have found that for most people, to connect the dots, they have to experience something in life that brings everything they've heard taught, preached, or explained to them, it, it, it somehow is brought to a place where the light comes on, their eyes are opened, and they begin to see literally what, what they'd heard taught at church is what they're facing at that exact moment. There's a circumstance that pushes a button in your life that causes you at that moment to say, will I be broken or will I just be a carnal man? It, 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 it's, not, it's easy in here. Everybody's a great Christian in here. Isn't that true? Amen. Man, I'm a great Christian in here this morning. Hallelujah. But we're going to meet some people that had to go through exactly that. The place of yielding. The place of consecration. The place of brokenness. Brokenness in the Bible doesn't mean devastation. Brokenness in the Bible means that, that nature inside of you, which is so, so stiff, I want what I want when I want it. Brokenness in the Bible means that gets broken. Until you finally say, you know what? It's not what I want when I want it. It's what He wants. When He wants it. And the question is, are you going to let your Grinch steal Christmas? Are you going to miss what God could do in your life by hanging on to your old nature when He wants to put a new nature inside of you? I'm going to read this. It's, 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 it's a lengthy story. Would you just let, let me read to you a story here, and I'm going to be done, but, but it'll be well worth a listen if you'll give me your attention. And I'll wrap up this morning with this. It's from a doctor, an OBGYN. One month before her baby was due, her routine examination showed that her baby was in a breech position. As a rule, the baby's head is in the lower part of the uterus for months before delivery, not because it is heavier and sinks in the surrounding fluid, but simply because it fits more comfortably in that position. There is no routine, spontaneous turning of all babies at the seventh or eighth month, as is so generally supposed. But the occasional baby found in a breech position in the last month not infrequently changes to the normal vertex position with the head down by the time it's ready to be born so that only about one baby in 25 is born in the breech position. This is fortunate, as the death rate of breech babies is comparatively high because of the difficulty in delivering the after-coming head and the imperative need of delivering it rather quickly after the body is born. At that moment, the cord becomes compressed between baby's hard little head and the mother's bony pelvis. When no oxygen reaches the baby's bloodstream, it inevitably dies in a few short minutes. Everyone in the delivery room is tense, except the mother herself in a breech delivery, especially if it's a first baby when the difficulty is greater. The mother is usually quietly asleep or almost so. The case I was speaking of was a complete breech, the baby's legs and feet being folded under it, tailor fashion, in contrast to the frank breech in which the thighs and legs are folded back on a baby's body like a jackknife, the little rear end backing its way into the world, first of all. The hardest thing for the attending doctor to do with any breech delivery is to keep his hands away from it until the natural forces of expulsion have thoroughly dilated the firm material structures that delay its progress. 
I waited as patiently as I could, sending frequent messages to the excited family in the corridor outside. At last the time had come, and I gently drew down one little foot. I grasped the other, but for some reason I could not understand. It would not come down beside the first one. I pulled again, gently enough, but with a little force, with light pressure on the abdomen from above by my assisting nurse. And the baby's body moved down just enough for me to see that it was a little girl. And then to my consternation, I saw that the other foot would never be beside the first one. The entire thigh from the hip to the knee was missing. And that one foot never could reach below the opposite knee. And the baby girl was to suffer this, a curious defect that I had never seen before, nor have I since. There followed the hardest struggle I've ever been with myself. I knew what a dreadful effect it would have upon the unstable nervous system of the mother. I felt sure that the family would almost certainly impoverish itself in taking the child to every famous orthopedist in the world whose achievement might offer a ray of hope. Most of all, I saw this little girl sitting sadly by herself while other girls laughed and danced and ran and played, and then I suddenly realized there was something that would save every pang but one, and that one thing was in my power. One breech baby in ten dies in delivery because it's not delivered rapidly enough. And now, if only I did not hurry, if I could slow my hand, if I could make myself delay those few short moments would not be an easy delivery anyway. Nobody in all this world would ever know. The mother, after the first shock of grief, would probably be glad she had lost a child so sadly handicapped. In a year or two, she would try again, and this tragic fate would never be repeated. Don't bring this suffering upon them, the small voice within me said. This baby's never taken a breath. Don't let her even take one. You probably can't get it out in time anyway. Don't hurry. Don't be a fool and bring this terrible thing upon them. Suppose your conscience does hurt a little. Can't you stand it better than they can? Maybe your conscience will hurt worse if you do get it out in time. I motioned to the nurse for the warm, sterile towel that is always ready for me in a breech delivery to wrap around the baby's body so that the stimulation of the cold air of the outside world may not induce a southern expansion of the baby's chest, causing the aspiration of fluid or mucus that might bring death. But this time the towel was only to conceal from the attending nurses that which my eyes alone had seen. With the touch of the pitiful little foot in my hand, a pang of sorrow for the baby's future swept through me and my decision was made. I glanced at the clock. Three of the allotted seven or eight minutes had already gone. Every eye in the room was upon me. I could feel the tension in their eagerness to do instantly what I had asked, totally unaware of what I was feeling. I hoped they could not possibly detect the tension of my own struggle at that moment. These nurses had seen me deliver dozens of breech babies successfully. Yes, and they'd seen me fail too. Now they were going to see me fail again. For the first time in my medical life, I was deliberately discarding what I had been taught was right for something that I felt sure was better. I slipped my hand beneath the towel to feel the pulsations of the baby's cord, a certain index of its condition. Two or three minutes more would be enough so that I might seem to be doing something. I drew the baby down a little lower to split out the arms, the usual next step. As I did so, the little pink foot on the good side bobbed out from its protecting towel and pressed firmly against my slowly moving hand, the hand into whose keeping the safety of the mother and the baby had been entrusted. There was a sudden convulsive movement of the baby's body, an actual feeling of strength and life and vigor. It was too much. I couldn't do it. I delivered the baby with her pitiful little leg. I told the family the next day, and with a catch in my voice, I told the mother, every foreboding came true. 
The mother was in a hospital for several months. I saw her once or twice, and she looked like the wraith of her former self. I heard of them indirectly from time to time. They'd been to Rochester, Minnesota. They'd been to Chicago, to Boston. I'd finally lost track of them altogether. As the years went on, I blamed myself bitterly for not having the strength to yield to that temptation. Through the many years that I have been here, there has developed in our hospital a pretty custom of staging an elaborate Christmas party each year for the employees, the nurses, and the doctors of the staff. There's always a beautifully decorated tree on the stage of our little auditorium. The girls spend weeks in preparation. We have so many difficult things to do during the year, so much discipline, so many of the stern realities of life that we've set aside this one day to touch upon the emotional and spiritual side. It's almost like going to an impressive church service as each year we dedicate ourselves to the new year ahead. This year, this past year, the arrangement was somewhat changed. The tree on the one side of the stage had been sprayed with silver paint, was hung with scores of gleaming silver, tinsel ornaments, without a trace of color anywhere, and with no lights hung upon the tree itself. It shone but faintly in the dimly lighted auditorium. Every doctor of the staff who could possibly be there was in his seat. The first rows were reserved for the nurses, and in a moment the procession entered, each girl in uniform, each one crowned by her nurse's cap, her badge of office. Around their shoulders were their blue Red Cross capes, one end tossed back to show the deep red linings. We rose as one man to do them honor, and as the last one reached her seat, we settled in our places again. The organ began the opening notes of one of the oldest of our carols. Slowly down the middle aisle, marching from the back of the auditorium, came 20 other girls singing softly, our own nurses in full uniform, each holding a lighted candle, while through the auditorium floated the familiar strains of Silent Night. We were on our feet again instantly. I could have killed anyone who spoke to me then because I couldn't have answered. By the time they reached their seats, I couldn't see. And then a great blue floodlight at the back was turned on very slowly, gradually covering the tree with increasing splendor, brighter and brighter, until every ornament was almost aflame. On the opposite side of the stage, a curtain was slowly drawn, and we saw three lovely young musicians, all in shimmering white evening gowns. They played very softly in unison with the organ, a harp, a cello, and a violin. I am quite sure I was not the only old sissy there whose eyes were filled with tears. I've always liked the harp. I love to watch the grace of a skillful player. I was especially fascinated by this young harpist. She played extraordinarily well, as if she loved it. Her slender fingers flickered across the strings as the nurses sang. Her face was made beautiful by a mass of auburn hair. It was upturned as if the world that moment was a wonderful and holy place. I waited when the short program was over to congratulate the chief nurse on the unusual effect she had arranged. And as I sat alone, there came running down the aisle a woman, a woman who I did not know. She came to me with arms outstretched. Oh, you saw her, she cried. You must have recognized your baby. That was my daughter who played the harp. And I saw you watching her. Don't you remember the little girl who was born with only one good leg 17 years ago? We tried everything. But now she has a whole artificial leg on that side. But you would never know it, would you? She can walk, she can swim, she can almost dance. Best of all, through all those years when she couldn't do those things, she learned to use her hands so wonderfully. She's going to be one of the world's great harpists. She enters the university this year at 17. 
She's my whole life, and she's so happy, and here she is. As we spoke this, this sweet young girl had quietly approached us, her eyes glowing, and now she stood beside me. This is your first doctor, my dear, our doctor, her mother said. Her voice trembled. I could see her literally swept back as I was through all the years of heartache to the day when I told her what she had to face. He was the first one to tell me about you. He brought you to me. Impulsively, I took the child in my arms. Across her warm young shoulder, I saw the creeping clock of the delivery room of 17 years before. I lived again those awful moments when her life was in my hand, when I decided on deliberate infanticide. I held her away from me and looked at her. You'll never know, my dear, I said. You will never know, nor will anyone else in the world, just what tonight has meant to me. Go play your harp again, please. Play Silent Night for me alone. I have a load on my shoulders that no one has ever seen. A load that only you can take away. And her mother sat beside me and quietly took my hand as her daughter played. Perhaps she knew what was in my mind. And as the last strains of Silent Night faded away, I think I found the answer and the comfort. I had waited for for so long. I just read you that story because there came a moment when you're going to have to break your selfishness and your self-centeredness and what you think life is to be and how convenient you think it ought to be for you. There comes a moment when you yield to the will of God. And the Christmas story, if it's anything else, it is this. It is people who yielded to the will of God. And the question we're going to face all through this month is this. Will you and I be that same sort of people? Will we be a people who will say, as one did, let it be done unto me according to your word? Will it be as one said, Lord, whatever you say, wherever you point me, I will go, whether it be to Egypt or out of town or to a census or wherever it is, I will do it. That's where it all starts. It doesn't start by casting out devils. It starts by yielding to the will of God. Let's stand, shall we? Holy Spirit, I appreciate your presence here in this place this day. Lord, my heart was to use all of these props around me to somehow open up people's hearts. That they might hear your word. They might respond to your wooing. They may make decisions, Lord, that ultimately will change the course of their destiny and maybe futures of others the last thing Holy Spirit I would ever want to do is to offend you but Spirit of God would you just sweep into this place right now just just move beyond all the effects and move in to the hearts and to the lives of people who are here this morning Lord there are folks here right now I know that are struggling with the will of God there are folks here that, that, Lord, you spoke things to, and for whatever reason, they've convinced themselves that they can hold you at arm's length, and, and, and they could stiff-arm you, and, and, and they could somehow avoid you. But this morning, Holy Spirit, you've come to them very graciously and kind, gentle, and said, when are you going to let go and yield? 
When are you going to allow me to break that nature inside of you so that you say yes to me? Yes to me. The Holy Spirit this morning is talking to some before we get through the rest of this holiday and it will get busy. And folks, with every head bowed and every eye closed, can I just tell you what I've, I've pastored for 26 years. And I can tell you when the holiday season comes, this last month of the year, people are so are, are just so disjointed and their attention span is here, there, and everywhere. And, all the, and, and it's not that it's evil, nothing evil going on. But it's hard to do the work of the kingdom the last month of the year. It's because of all the other stuff. And I just want to do my best to somehow break through the spirit of this age and this month. So, so God has a chance to really reach into hearts. And so this morning what we're going to do here in this last moment... I'm going to pray a prayer that if you need to consecrate yourself, if you need to yield to God, I don't, it could be any one of a, of a thousand things, but you know, you know right now that there's been a, a pushing away saying, Lord, I'll do a lot, and, but I don't know that I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. I, let me tell you, you don't know. You don't know how your obedience or your disobedience can affect the future and have a rippling effect. In so many lives, you just never know. I want you to live all out for God because I know that that life is not a wasted life. And right now, the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaking to some right now. And this is what I want to ask you to do right now. If you need to consecrate some areas of your life right now. You say, you saying I'm not saved? I'm, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you're not broken. You can be saved and unbroken. That's most of the church. It's saved, but it's unbroken. It's saved, but it's unyielded. It's, it's, it's saved, but it refuses to consecrate itself. And that's why we walk in wildernesses and deserts. But if you'll consecrate yourself, as Joshua said, the Lord will lead you into a promised land. In these last moments, I don't know what that means, but I'm giving an invitation right now for you to slip out right where you're at. We've only got just a few moments. But, but I, shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to toy here with this long it just it just takes a moment just and 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 could just just kneel before the lord maybe that'd be a good way to do it it's hard to be broken when you're standing on your feet if you just maybe kneel before the lord and this is between you and god it's not like i can lead you in a in a prayer but you're the one that knows the area there could be a however many folks kneel here there could be you know 20 30 40 different totally different areas but you got to yield it you got to yield it and say, Lord, I've stiff-armed you in this area. Lord, I've been willful in this area. I've not consecrated this arena of my life. I've not, I've not really entered into a brokenness. Lord, if you were to ask me to do some of the things I know, I know when we get to the Christmas story that I'm going to read about people who did some incredible things. The only way they could do that was because they consecrated themselves to the purposes of God. Oh, let it start this morning. You may not even know that before this whole month over with, you may be down here every Sunday. I don't know. But, but what better way to start than to say, Lord, I present myself. I present myself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable service. 
To not be conformed to the patterns of this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind that I might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Yielding to the will of God the best decision you'll ever make. It doesn't mean you're going to go into the ministry. What it means is, is that your whole life becomes the ministry. Whether you're butcher or baker or candlestick maker, it becomes your ministry. Your whole life is about serving you, serving you, serving you. Thank you, Lord, for these. I want you guys just to tarry here in these last few moments. I want everybody still with heads bowed and eyes closed, everybody right now. I'm going to pray, and I want everyone just to agree with me right now. Father, I ask right now, Lord, I pastor this church, and I'm just sort of stepping in in this moment as the head of this local body. Lord, and just interceding for all of us, saying, Lord, cause us to be a church. Cause us to be a people. Broken, consecrated, yielded to the will of God. Whatever that means, however that looks, Lord, cause us to be a people who rejoice. Mary did when she said, I rejoice. My soul doth rejoice in the Lord. My spirit rejoices. My soul magnifies the Lord, my Savior. Lord, let it be said of us the same thing when you, when you call us to unusual things, when you, when you call us to strange things in the eyes of others. Lord, let it be said of us that we rejoice in You. Thanks, Lord. Thank You, Lord. Lord, I pray right now for this body. I pray in particular for these You are obviously speaking to here this morning. Lord, I know this congregation. I know this people. I know these people are after you. Many of them I'm looking at right now. Lord, it's not about that there's some deep, dark secret. Lord, you're talking to them about whether it's all out or not. Lord, they've walked some things as good as they've known how to walk it, but you've just messed with them this morning on the inside and said, I'm calling you to yield another area, to consecrate another thing. Lord, would you complete the work? I wish I could lay hands on them and say, be done. I wish I could cast something out of them and say it's through. But Lord, this is the part that you have reserved specifically individually between you and them. This is business that they must transact. Lord, let them transact it victoriously today. Lord, let, let, it, not, let it not bring a burden. Let it bring a release. Let it not bring a bondage. Let it bring freedom in Jesus' name. Let it, let it, not, let it not bring sorrow, but let it bring a joy. I pray in the name of Jesus. The Bible says that when Jesus saw his cross, it said, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's a cross that you and I are going to have to embrace. And it's not a hard thing. It's a joyful thing. Embrace it. It is your life. It is your health. It is your answer. Lord, I pray however long it takes. If it takes some time here, if they have to go home and they get before you, however long it takes. Lord, let it be said of these. Let it be said of us as a people. Let it be said of me as a pastor. Lord, it's all out 100% for you. Lord, deal with that inner Grinch. It's just a silly little thing. Deal with our carnal nature. Cause it to be broken that we might experience that next dimension of victory. I ask in Jesus' name. Can the assembly say amen? Amen and amen. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand clap. Listen to me, guys. God's will is good. It is perfect. And, and let Him keep messing with you. Man, it's the best mess up you'll ever get in. It's when God keeps messing with you like that. Amen. Amen.
Isn't God good? Hey, middle of the week, we're going to meet. Remember now, 